The text for the sermon is taken from the gospel. Jesus said, which of you convinces me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Well, here we are in Passion Sunday, and with Passion Sunday, we jump from the feeding of the multitude in chapter 6 of John to the temple in Jerusalem in chapter 7 and 8. Both chapters, uh, 7 and 8, uh, are taken up with Jesus' teaching, healing, uh, uh, forgiveness, uh, as well as what appears to be his intentional provocation of the Pharisees. Both of these chapters are full of public insults. Everyone is bristling, including Jesus. And it looks like he went out of his way to pick a fight. The Pharisees accused Jesus of being untruthful concerning his purpose and untruthful or vague concerning his parentage. You're seeking self-promotion, they say in so many words. You're seeking personal glory. Then in another passage, they say to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one God, the Father, which in so many words is their uh, challenge to Jesus to bring his Father forward. Who is this Father you continually talk about? Bring him here. Given your mother's reputation, you probably don't know who he is. That's the un that is the underlying theme there. Jesus responds, I am from above, you are from beneath. I know my Father and do always the things that are pleasing to him. I speak what I have seen with my Father. You do the things you have heard from your Father. Our Father is Abraham, the Pharisees said. Your Father is the devil, Jesus says. Who are you pretending to be? Well, there you have a sampling of chapter 7 and 8. Not exactly the soft answer that turneth away wrath. So what's going on here? In order to understand the text of scripture, any scripture, this included, I want to suggest to you that the only way that is possible is by approaching scripture, this one in particular, uh, from the point of view of what some people have uh, called the implied reader. Well, what does that mean? What is an implied reader? It simply means that in order to grasp the meaning of Scripture, we have to know to whom it was written, to whom was the letter itself written. We must identify the implied reader. So imagine in your mind's eye those little parishes scattered throughout Asia Minor that John planted or that John certainly was the bishop over. Uh, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum, uh, Smyrna, Ephesus, Laodicea, and Philadelphia. You should recognize those city parishes from the book of Revelation as well as from the letters of Ignatius the Bishop of Antioch. Here is the implied reader of the text. Those little parishes and those parishioners within those little parishes. It's only by passing over to the standpoint of the implied reader that we may hope to understand this text. But that should not be hard for you to do at all. 
The seven churches of Asia do not exhaust the identity of the implied reader. You know why they, they don't exhaust the implied reader? Because you are to be identified as the implied reader of the text as well as the parishes that John established. Why? Because you share the same baptism as they. Because you drink the same spiritual drink as they. And we worship the same resurrected Lord Jesus Christ as our God. Just as they did then, so we do now. We have a great advantage, which is that the blessed departed of those little parishes uh, are bowing before the heavenly throne of grace and lifting up their prayers for us so that we might rightly divide the word of truth because it's the truth that sets you free. Therefore, the great implied reader of this text and all other texts of Holy Scripture is none other than the Bride of Christ, Holy Mother Church, setting with the Bible opened upon her lap and her children gathered around. The household of faith, the ark of safety, a people, a holy nation raised up by the grace of Jesus Christ. And just like the Ephesians, the Laodiceans, the Philadelphians back in John's salad days, we have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and we, just like those first churchmen, are anointed and inspired and filled with the Holy Spirit. And just because of that, indeed only because of that, we can read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the saving divine reality of which these texts speak. The Pharisee, in this account, uh, are not the implied readers, and neither is Israel. He that is born of God, he that is of God, heareth the word of God, yet therefore hear them not, hear, ye hear them not, because you are not of God. The Roman Empire is not the implied reader of the text. The United States of America is not the implied reader. The religion department at UVA or the religion department at Duke Divinity School, believe it or not, is not the implied reader. This is our text. These scriptures belong to us. They were given to us as a gift by God Almighty, written with us in mind. And we know that God speaks to us, his own children, and we know that we are competent readers, you are competent readers, competent hearers, because we are of God, born of God, children of God by grace. So that being the case, all you implied hearers and readers have confidence. Listen to me as we get back to the gospel for the Passion, uh, for Passion Sunday. This is for you. Our text today presents us with a picture of Christ full of passion. Passion for the truth. Passion for obedience to his Father. Passion for the liberation of his people from sin. And passionate for our finality in God. Because we are implied readers and hearers, we already know, do we not, that uh, our Lord is capable of great passion. We remember him being incensed 
by the turning of his father's house into a den of, den of thieves and how he dealt with it. And here he is incensed at a culture of lies that has come to roost in Israel. And you can almost see the hair bristle on the back of Jesus' neck as they speak. We were not born of fornication like you. We have one father, namely God. Read that text and you'll see Jesus' passion. Does it bother you that Jesus is passionate? Does it worry you that Jesus experiences deep, profound emotion and passion? It ought not to. In verse 40, he says to the Pharisees, But now you seek to kill me because I am a man that's told you the truth which I heard from God. Jesus is a man. Jesus is a true human being. The word that he uses here is anthropos. I am a man, a man who is passable a man who has experienced and experiences passion. The word of the Father made flesh, the word of the Father assuming into his divine life true humanity. But Jesus did not experience passion and emotion as we do because we more often than not are controlled by our feelings and led from a path of goodness and righteousness by passion stir up to war and violence because of fear and enmity why is that I have an answer the answer is the wounds of the fall because of the wounds of the fall one of the wounds of the fall is the priority that comes to rest in the peril that our human faculty of passion has after the after the fall, so that before the fall, passions could be used. Now, after the fall, the passions, do they not more frequently use us? But Jesus was not, but Jesus was without sin. Standing in the temple was the light of the world. All that is perfectly pleasing to the Father was standing there in the flesh. He was not led by his passions, but rather he used his very human passions to strengthen himself for the doing of the will of God. You know something? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve could have become angry and incensed at the devil for questioning the honor of God, but did not. Because you have been baptized, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, you have been infused with the heavenly virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Because you have been set free, you may become incensed at sin, in particular the sins that work their way into your life. You may use your passion, your passion of anger, as a strength. That would be a godly use of passion. That would be a Christological use of the human faculty of passion. But I will say this, parenthetically, that passions are very dangerous for us because of, because of the fall, and we have to be very careful with it. Yet, it's possible. 
Here's a, I'm going to give you, free of charge, a Lenten meditation. Think about this. Be attentive to your experience of anger. What angers you? Mark it down. Let me ask you something. How do you know that you're angry when you're angry? I'll tell you something, I think. Anger tends to make attentiveness nearly effortless. It locks me into the thing that I'm angry with or angry about. Anger tends to make attentiveness nearly effortless. And anger tends to energize the angry person. That's how Jesus could use it, as a, as a, a human faculty to strengthen himself to go through what he was about to go through. Anger seems to be spontaneous and effortless. It seems almost always, in my case, okay, this is a public confession. Now I've got everybody's attention, right? In my case, it seems that anger is ignited by what I perceive to be someone else's sin, someone else's injustice. Is that true of your experience of anger? And finally, this is the last piece of the meditation. This will be online, by the way, if you want to look at it later. Why don't I experience anger toward my sin? I experience conviction sometimes, sometimes not. I experience sadness and a sense of a ruptured relationship with God and others. Why don't I get angry at the sin? This makes me think about St. Paul. Be angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath may have a completely different meaning from that which we usually attach to it. Be angry and sin not. Jesus said, which of you convinces me of sin? You know, it's a bit surprising to me that the Pharisees, who have just been making list and list of failures and sins that Jesus had committed, were unable to present him publicly without at least one sin. But they don't do that. Rather, they begin to accuse him of being a Samaritan, a non-Jew, possessed of a demon. Once again, the Pharisees demonstrate that they cannot hear the, the word of God. This, and you know, they do this over and over again, and we'll see it later on. Is everything is taken literally. Forget the spiritual meaning of things. Uh, Nicodemus says, how can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time? How stupid is that? It's ridiculous, but it happens over and over again. Why do you not believe me, Jesus says? Well, we know why. They do not believe because they're not born of God. Therefore, they do not believe Jesus. Here is Jesus standing in the temple. The concrete, incarnated, realized righteousness, all of the beauty and goodness of God Almighty in the flesh. In him, righteousness and truth have met together for the salvation and the final perfection of man. Murder and falsehood are united in the devil for our destruction. 
Righteousness has its origin in truth, while sin is generated through falsehood. Jesus, with full confidence in his Father, challenges them then and there to uncover one moral blemish in his life or his word, and they can't do it. And their inability to put a finger on Jesus' sin, any sin in Jesus, ought to lead them to recognize the truth, but it doesn't. The formal declaration of the sinlessness, sinlessness of Jesus in the gospel reflects for us our personal experience of confidence that we have learned to place in him. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him is no sin. No one who abides in him continues in sin. No one who practices sin has either seen him or know him. True Christian piety, true Christian holiness originates in the sinless life of Jesus Christ and it grows into love and service by keeping and abiding in his word. But the recognition of the sinlessness of Jesus is possible only through a spiritual rebirth in baptism, our incorporation into the spiritual community he birthed, which is the church, the witness, and the keeper and the guardian of the record of his life and teaching. We keep his word in worship, in doctrine, and in life. Jesus said to these Pharisees, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Okay, here, here again is an example of how the Pharisees just take everything so literally that they're blind. Everything is literal and material, in a, taken literally and in a material manner. Then he says, uh, you'll never taste death. And then, and then they say, now we know you have a devil. Abraham is dead. The prophets are dead. And you say, if a man keep my word, he'll never taste death. Abraham and the prophets are dead. Who do you think you are? Then Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Since the Pharisees are unregenerate, they cannot understand spiritual things, and therefore, when our Lord speaks of spiritual things, of eternal life, which lies in our incorporation into the divine life of God, they go right to a literal material understanding. Abraham and the prophets are dead, they reason. Who are you pretending to be? And when our Lord declared Abraham's joy upon seeing his day, you know what they did? They crunched the numbers. It's exactly what they did. Have you seen Abraham? He's been dead for centuries, and you're not even 50 years old. Brilliant. And then we have the conclusion of the discourse. Okay, not even a paragraph, not a good paragraph left here, okay? I'm almost finished. Then we have the conclusion. Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is not claiming mere pre-existence before Abraham. 
If that were the case, he could have said or would have said, before Abraham came into being, I came into being. But that's not what he's saying. That would mean that the Son of God came into being at some point in time. That's not what he said. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is not merely antecedent to Abraham. Jesus Christ is God Almighty, true God, fully God, and fully man. People can dispute whether or not that's clear in uh, the Gospel of John or not. This is one thing that the Pharisees got crystal clear because they tried to kill him for claiming to be God. They understood this claim. They understood, but they didn't believe him. The temple was still under construction, and fragments of rock were always uh, littered the ground. And the Jews bent down to pick up a stone, pick up stones uh, uh, to, to kill him, to stone him to death. And when they rose up, they couldn't see Jesus. The final irony of this chapter is that blindness of the Jew, the blindness of the Pharisee. The last words of the text are heartbreaking. He went out of the temple. He went out of the temple. The God of Israel made flesh, made flesh to liberate his people, the one who came unto his own, was not received by his own. Jesus, the word of the Father made flesh, the God of Israel, then walked out of the temple, and the glory departed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.